Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized, badass, disability rights activist, Judy Human. This episode, Judy chats with Spencer West. Spencer is a motivational speaker, content creator, and activist. You may know him from his popular TikTok and Instagram Reel videos. Spencer and Judy discuss his role in improving representation, the intersections of being gay and disabled, as well as the access differences Spencer has discovered going from growing up in the U.S. to now living in Canada. Be sure to stick around for our Ask Judy segment at the end of the episode featuring a special guest. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet this episode's guest. Welcome back, everybody, to The Human Perspective. Today, we're going to have another great interview with Spencer West. Many of you may be his follower already on TikTok where you have how many followers? Uh, Over 4 million. (laughs) Over 4 million. Amazing. Okay, so let's dive in. You've got a very interesting background. So where did you grow up and where are you living now? Yeah, so I grew up in the state of Wyoming. That's where my family still lives. And I currently live in Toronto, Canada. I moved here about 14 years ago for work and then never left. (laughs) And what do you see as some of the major distinctions between Wyoming and Toronto? Well, uh, quite a difference in population, (laughs) number one. When I was living in Wyoming, the animal population outnumbered the people population. So living in Toronto, I think we're just about 3 million people here in the greater Toronto area. Accessibility is is a bit better here, although there's still a lot of work to be done. And there's more opportunity for me in particular. You know, growing up in Wyoming, although it was lovely, you were limited as far as what you could do in regards to a job or career. Anybody disabled or not. Correct. <laughs> when did you acquire your disability? I was I was born with my disability and they didn't realize until I was physically born. And then they saw that something was wrong with my legs. They looked different. They didn't look normal, so to speak. Uh, and after a bunch of tests, they discovered I had a genetic disease called sacrilegenesis, which basically affected the sacrum. You sort of it's like in between your tailbone and your and your spine. And it has varying degrees of, of what can happen. For me, it affected the muscles in my legs. And then it also affected my bladder a little bit. So it resulted in two amputations. And do people ever ask you about whether you made the right decision or your family made the right decision on amputating your legs? Yeah, you know, not as often as, as I think people would, would assume, but I have gotten that question before. But for me in particular, one of the things that I think both my family and I have always been really good at is knowing what I need and, and what I want. And so my mom was really good at asking a lot of questions and understanding what's the right thing. And so for me, amputating both my legs, prosthetics were just too hard to use. We tried and it, and it didn't work. So for me, it was easier to navigate the world on my hands and then in a wheelchair. So for us, it was it was definitely the right decision. And you have great broad shoulders. <laughs> I do, which makes it hard to find clothes, to be honest. <laughs> Yesterday, my husband and I celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary. Wow. And one of the first things 
that made me attracted to him was seeing him in his wheelchair from the back and he's got really broad shoulders. So I think broad shoulders definitely are something that are attractive. <laughs> so you're in a really unique position because you can talk about both uh, having grown up in the United States and being in Canada. So I'd like to focus a few minutes on representation of disabled people in the media in the U.S. and Canada mm -hmm. and ask whether or not you see a distinction. Do you see both countries as being pretty equal? Do you see CBC, for example, and other Canadian stations uh, doing more in the area of disability than the United States? What's your view? I mean, from my perspective, I don't think anyone's doing a great job, to be honest. You know, what's interesting about the United States is they have such a broader reach and a broader audience. You know, that's sort of where movies and a lot of popular TV shows happen and are made. Canada is still small. I think, you know, for the first time in a long time, Schitt's Creek was one of the, the big shows to come out of Canada. But we rarely in any country that I've been to see representation like myself or even like you, Judy, at least from my perspective, being seen. So, no, I don't think anyone's doing a great job, to be honest. And I would even say, you know, the Charters of Rights and Freedoms that Canada has is very limited even when it comes to disabled rights. You know, we have the broader global sort of disabled rights. But even here in Canada, like the province of Ontario, where I live, we have something similar to the ADA, but that's not a federal law all across Canada, to my knowledge. So there's still quite a bit of work to do here when it comes to that. So even <laughs> I think representation is last on the list at this point. I think it's a very important point that, people in Canada and the U.S. may not be aware of, but laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504 and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act are federal laws. And we basically look at them as floors, as you were saying. So every state has to at least reach the floor and then states can exceed it. But in Canada, that's not true in many cases. So a province, as you were saying, can have a law which can be good, but then another province may have one which is not as strong. You know, this discussion for me is really interesting because quite frankly, uh, the U.S. doesn't know that much about Canada. Canada doesn't know that much, I think, about the U.S. And so I'm also partially hoping that this discussion will enable more of that to happen. So what got you started in creating videos? Yeah, you know, growing up as a kid, I, I loved to do it just on my own when we'd go on vacation and, and just play around. But it wasn't until I moved to Canada and I became a, a motivational speaker and I was sharing a bit of my story and the, the feedback that I was getting in the very beginning, this is before Instagram even existed, was this was nice to hang out with you for an hour, but like, where do we find more of you? And so we thought, well, where can we where can we continue the message that I'm sharing in a way that is is not just a one hour keynote, but can be potentially daily. And so that's when we started to look at social media as as an option. And just so happens that's sort of when things were starting to expand and Instagram came along and then, you know, in the last few years, TikTok as well. So it sort of came from that. It's like, how do we continue to connect with people uh, that we've met or find new people? Who is we? Oh, that's a good question. I guess when I say we, it's like, I've got a, a friend and business partner. His name is Jake, who I run my business with. And then I have this amazing woman who I've been with for 14 years who handles all my speaking engagements. So it's sort of our, our, our small team here. <laughs> so what drew you into wanting to be a public speaker? You know what? I initially, that was never on my radar. A friend of mine kept saying, like, you should be a speaker. And I'm like, but talk about what? Yeah, I have a disability, but like, I'm not here to use that to like inspire people in, in that regard. And I was like, so I don't really have anything to talk about. That seems a bit narcissistic and arrogant to do so. And then I did some traveling and I, I volunteered in East Africa. And 
I had volunteered with this amazing organization that unfortunately no longer exists, but I was so enamored by what I had learned. And I thought maybe this is my way in. Maybe I could be a speaker and tell my story on behalf of another organization to do some good at the same time. And that's sort of when I, I started to lean into it and things started to take off from there. I find you very engaging. <laughs> I love looking at your pieces because you're very present. What do you see as some of the comments that people make about you in relationship to your presentations? And do you do Q&A? What kinds of questions do people ask you? Yeah, so for me, just to give a quick backstory, what I do for my keynotes is I have a couple different options. One is like sort of general empowerment and lessons that I've learned along the way and how those lessons sort of apply to folks in their daily lives. And some of that is talking a little bit about my disability. And then I have another speech, which is, you know, leveraging talent with disabilities in the workplace and my experience of what that was like growing up and how difficult it was for me to find a job because of my disability. Um, so the feedback that I get oftentimes from both speeches is specifically the, the empowerment one is like, I felt like you were talking just to me, uh, which was really kind. And then, you know, when we're looking at leveraging talent with disabilities, you know, that's been a lot of like, wow, I had no idea that these were the myths that I've been like existing with and has stopped our organization from, you know, hiring folks like you and I, Judy, um, who have the qualifications and all the things necessary and just might need, you know, a few accommodations here and there. So a lot of the, the feedback that I get is, is really lovely. And some of it is like, I, I feel like I'm not alone. It was nice to have another disabled person speaking and, and talking about their story, even though I may not be able to relate 100% to not having legs, I can relate to the disabled experience. When did you start identifying as a disabled person? Oh gosh, I would probably say in the last like eight to 10 years. You know, I grew up in a time, I was born in 1981 and specifically in Wyoming, you know, we were sort of taught, you don't want to see yourself as disabled. You want to overcome your disability. Uh, you want to look just like everyone else or, or be as normal as possible. And, you know, now we know how, how detrimental that is and how ableist that thinking is. It's like, I don't have anything to overcome but ableism at the end of the day. And so it's taken me a long time to unlearn a lot of those things and to be comfortable. One day I just started saying it in my speeches in hopes that I would be comfortable and believe it. <laughs> and eventually I did. And a lot of what you see on social media now is me learning in real time, you know, how to really lean into my disability, how to be proud of it and how to be a part of the community in a way that is that is helpful. What role do you believe you're playing within the disability movement to advance it? What I hope is through the videos that I make, it give both disabled and non-disabled folks an example of, of what it's like. So specifically for non-disabled folks, the barriers that I face, some of the privileges that come along with my disability. So then the next time that they're out in their own community and they, they you know, go to a business, they might think for the first time, oh my gosh, there's three stairs to get up in here. How would Spencer get up in here? How would another disabled person navigate this space? I'm a firm believer that it, and being someone that's queer, this is like a big thing in the queer community too. If you know someone, maybe not directly, but if you were have the experience and know someone, you have a bit more empathy and your lens starts to change about the world around you. And the hope is then you start to realize that you can play a part in taking action. So giving folks an example and also being a, a, a sort of a face of representation of being queer and disabled and, and that, you know, we exist. What are some of the comments that you get from non-disabled individuals? Like 4 million viewers. It's like amazing. <laughs> Do people write to you, let you know the impact that you've been having on them? I know I hear some from people. Um, and then I feel like frequently it's the first time 
many people have even touched on the discussion of disability. So our impact um, is limited initially. Do you feel like you're getting many people who are coming back and learning more? And do you have any way of knowing what changes, long-term changes they're making, both disabled and non-disabled people, I guess? Yeah, it's it's hard to like really know like if changes are being made and, and what they are, you know, yeah. but I think what, what I experience and what I see is people do come back uh, and, and they do want to learn more and, and they want to understand more. And one of the things that, that I've been getting a lot lately, which is really lovely, is, you know, a lot of non-disabled folks talking about, I've, I've shared these videos with my kids and, and teaching my kids about folks with disabilities and not to be afraid and to understand that you can ask questions, but how to ask questions in a, in a way that is comfortable for everyone. And, and so I think for me, when, we, when we're when we looking at non-disabled folks, those are the things that I notice. And that, you know, you have repeat folks that come back and always comment on, on your, your content. But I, I do, similar to what you're saying, do you get a lot of uh, direct messages as well? Like, you know, thank you, I, I had no idea. Like, you know, I did a video the other day about how having an automatic car wash reduces a barrier for me because washing my car can be so challenging. And I end up being soaked if I try to do it just by my Myself. And there were a lot of folks who were like, oh, I never thought of something as simple as an automatic car wash could reduce a barrier. And that's a bit superficial, but I think it's a good example. I don't think it's superficial at all. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's a great example. And I think what's good about that example is if people care to get their car washed, the reason I was smiling when you were discussing it is thinking about our van and how it's pretty dirty. <laughs> whether or not we have access to an automatic car wash. But for those people who want to keep their car clean, that's a great example. And you can just multiply it in so many different ways. Yeah. Are you working with other disabled people in the work that you're doing on a regular basis? And are you working with any other local or national or international groups? When it comes to actual work, I haven't I haven't actually done any physical work with folks yet. I would really like to, you know, I've got a friend named Andrew Gerza who is based here in Toronto, sure. who's incredible. And I've been on his podcast and we become friends and those sorts of things. But, you know, my platform sort of took off duty during the pandemic. Uh, so being together was just wasn't an option. I really hope to to have the opportunity. I will say this just recently, I was part of a series that um, was released on YouTube called Everybody Curious. I know we're going to talk about that. Go ahead. Okay. So where we worked with kids with disabilities, learning about the birds and the bees and sexual orientation and dating and safe sex and all of those things. So I'm slowly starting to get into that space. And there's lots of folks that I would love to work with at some point for sure. Maybe we could stay on this subject for a minute. How did this program come about? Why did they reach out to you? Did you have anything to do with its development or did they reach out to you when they had started to develop it? Yeah, so this is the third season of this show. And the first two seasons were in person in a classroom with two other hosts. Uh, and so they had reached out because they're based in Toronto and knew who I was and said, would you be willing to like read a question that one of the students asked for one of the videos? And I said, sure. And then during the pandemic, I met the producer um, and she was talking about, you know, season three and sort of what they were thinking. And I just in passing mentioned like, I think it would be really great if, you know, we had this conversation with kids with disabilities because we're usually left out of most conversations and specifically when it comes to, you know, puberty and the birds and the bees and, and all of those sorts of things. And our, and our bodies sometimes change differently than non-disabled folks. So I wouldn't say that I was the driving force there, but it was a discussion that we had. And then when it came time to film, she reached out and was like, well, do you want to co-host and, and be part of the show, um, which I was really grateful for. 
Yeah, and people should really watch it. I was watching a little bit of it earlier. Kylie, you know, in her great research background, uh, found it pretty quickly after it came out. And it's great. I mean, what I really like about the program is uh, you and your co-host and the discussions that you're having with children. And as I've been saying, you've got this very natural comfort level uh, where you can speak to people of all ages. And here you are talking to children who have disabilities about subjects that adults frequently have difficulty discussing with any kids. And so I really think it's um, a great example of A, the importance of these discussions and B, how people can have fun by doing this. It's a great example. Thank you. So many of your videos explore your identity as a disabled man. What are some of the key messages that you're trying to elevate? I think for me, it's ultimately to help people understand you know, that as a disabled community, the barriers that exist are barriers that we choose to exist. Like if we all stopped choosing to allow them to exist, the world would be just so much more inclusive. And I, and I love this idea of like all of our liberation is tied up together from, you know, the, the, the black community, people of color, the queer community. And if we all started to work together and stop choosing to allow these things to exist, I, I would hope the world would look a lot different. And so for me, that's sort of what I'm doing is in a funny, lighthearted way, I want people to understand what my experience is and what that looks like on a daily basis in, in hopes that it provides a bit of empathy and a new lens so that then they're interested in, in looking, well, maybe we don't have to choose this anymore. Maybe we can choose something different so that everyone can participate. Because for me, you know, I, I'm really grateful that 4 million people are interested in what I have to say, but I want to make sure that we're doing something with it. The TikTok is fun and I'll do the dances every now and then, but it's for me, it's like, how do I use this platform in a way to help our community access the world more? I mean, I think we've been discussing this, you know, for example, when you talked about the automatic car wash, I believe that one of the issues, not just in disability, but across underrepresented populations is very much that we don't know the issues that people are facing. Um, I certainly think that's true in the area of disability. And as you've been discussing, disability is pretty complex. It's not a group. It's like people with all kinds of disabilities whose onset of disability occurs all across the lifespan and who come from every other community. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to bring people in to allow them to understand not only the barriers that we're facing and how to address some of those, like steps and a ramp, captioning interpreters, automatic car washes, electric doors, wider bathrooms, whatever the issue may be, not wearing perfume, scented products. Many cases, people really don't know that these are issues. And hearing it one time also may have an impact, but may quickly be forgotten, not intentionally. Second, third time, we get rid of the term not intentionally. This episode of The Human Perspective is sponsored by Fable. Fable is an accessibility platform powered by people with disabilities. Fable understands that disabled people are often underemployed due to systemic barriers. To help bridge this gap in opportunities, Fable has created Fable Pathways, a free skill development program created by disabled people for disabled people. Pathways course instructors are experts in their fields and have lived experience with disability. 
get started in web development with screen reader user Kelly Ford from Microsoft or advance your career with Becoming a Manager, taught by Fable's Kate Kelsevich. And look forward to more content coming later this year, including a course delivered by me, Judy Human. Pathways courses empower disabled people to participate in the technology workforce. They offer free, on-demand, and assistive technology-friendly content. Use the link in this episode's description to sign up and take your career to the next level. looking for a moment on the issue of being a gay disabled man. Do you feel that the queer community has included uh, those with disabilities? And I'm, I'm only selecting this because of the way you identify and I'm not saying that it's different than any other community. What barriers do you feel still exist? What changes do you feel are slowly happening? So th there's two things from my experiences as being a gay man that's also disabled. Number one, it's just accessing the spaces in general. Accessing queer spaces, are it's very difficult, um, specifically here in Toronto. We've got one street called Church Street, which is the, the, the village here, which is known as sort of the, where the queer community has, has always existed. And most things have stairs. And it's really interesting here in Toronto, most buildings, their their bathrooms are in the basement, um, which, which is like so frustrating. So just being able to access the space and be a part of the community doesn't exist and is very limited. And then if we look at it from the other lens of looking at trying to date, you know, uh, specifically a lot of gay men can be a bit superficial and, and it's all about how you look and what your body looks like. And so being disabled and having a body that looks a little bit different isn't seen as desirable, isn't seen as sort of partner material. Now there's, you know, th there's all sides of it. There are folks that can be really terrible and there can be folks that don't care. And, and it is really amazing. And I have had relationships and those sorts of things, but I think it's those two things. It's the stigma of looking a certain way in order to be desirable and then actually physically accessing spaces to be a part of the community. So I would say on the whole, we are left out. Now, the interesting thing is there's a lot of shows now, shows like Special, and they're rebooting a series called Queer as Folk, which is coming out this June, which they're featuring a lot of gay disabled actors and characters. And so I think we're starting to have the conversation and push hopefully the needle a little bit in the community about being more accessible, both physically and emotionally. But we'll see. That for me has been my experience. Have you seen Hi, Are You Single by Ryan Haddad? I've seen a few clips, yes. So uh, Kylie and I had the privilege of going and seeing his production here at the Mammoth Theater mm -hmm. and meeting him. And it is a great production. And, you know, like you, he's, he's very engaging. And the play is a one-person show. And I think, you know, people leave that seeing so many things a great production It's a disabled person as the actor who's very much revealing himself in a very personal way, enabling people, I think, both to laugh with him and get a better understanding of where he's coming from. And I think obviously he and you and many others, because of your ability to be so engaging and being in all these different settings where people are learning from you, I think that's all really quite important. What other projects are you currently working on that listeners should know about? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, right now it's it's Pride season is upon us, you know, and so I'm excited for Pride. I've got some things in, in the works. So one of the things that's really exciting is that I'm going to be the face of Crest's Pride campaign, the toothpaste, where we've done a really fun billboard. We'll have seven billboards here in Toronto, I believe one in Vancouver and one in Montreal. And then we created this really cool sort of like a PSA for their website with my best friend, Alex, who um, is cisgender male, heterosexual, married. And the video is about how not only he's an incredible ally to me as a queer disabled person, but um, his son, he's raising the next generation of allies and making sure that he understands about the queer identity. And, and you know, I, I'm so grateful that I have the ability to go and babysit him when, when they need help and all those sorts of things. So it's going to be a really cute video just showing what allyship looks like and, and raising the next generation of allies. So I'm really excited for that. How did it come about? How did Chris get involved? Yeah, it's the power of social media, Judy. It's it's bananas how, how that works. They just reached out. They'd seen my TikToks and they'd seen my Instagram. And because I talk about my identity, they were like, are you interested in, in being a part of this campaign this year for Pride? So very, very exciting. Yeah. So, you know, you talked about how relatively recently, I think you were saying like eight years or so before you um, really started publicly speaking and identifying more as a disabled person. Mm -hmm. What are some of your thoughts for not just uh, younger people, but people of all ages around the issue of identification and what thoughts and messages do you have to people about how they can explore I want to say being more public, but it's not necessarily being more public, although that clearly is something which is beneficial, but accepting their disability as something which is not a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. This is a this is a good question. Also, I feel like a, a hard question because I think so often there's so many outside factors that contribute to these sorts of things. It's like, you know, how does your community view disabled folks? How does your smaller personal community from your family to your friends view your disability. And then oftentimes, at least for me, that's what sort of shaped my identity in the beginning, right? Was, you know, we were told, even though you, you don't have legs, like you can do everything that anybody else can. And that's really important to focus on, on the positive and those sorts of things. And it was never a discussion. It was never talked about. And it wasn't until I sort of leaned into my authenticity and started to lean into my disability that I found how powerful I could be. But that, that took a lot of time. It took a lot of discussion and self-exploration and therapy. You know, I'm 41. <laughs> so, but what I think is interesting now, Judy, that and the, what I hope is happening, and this isn't necessarily really an answer, because I feel like it's it's similar to like the, the gay community. I don't want to force anybody to be anything that they're not ready for. And so for me, it's just exploring what's most comfortable for you and being open to the idea that there might be more and there might be more that you can lean into. And then for things like yourself, Judy, and Crip Camp and your podcast and shows like Special and the other shows that, that are now starting to exist with folks with disabilities, we're starting to have that sort of positive spin on it now of it's actually really amazing to be disabled and to lean into that. So I guess what I hope is with more examples, people start to understand that, that it's okay, but it's such a process and, and everyone comes into it in their own time. I feel like now young people, because of access to media, it's happening faster because there are examples now where for myself, there just wasn't that it didn't exist. So we had to be the examples for ourselves. That's, I don't, that's not really an answer. <laughs> no, it is an answer because there isn't an answer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so so I wasn't like expecting you to give an answer. 
I, I think, you know, when we started out with this discussion a little bit about representation in the media, I think what's very important about the programs that you and others are on, which is so very different than when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, is that, you know, we are seeing ourselves, those of us with visible disabilities, in a way which is not apologetic. Certainly, that's not yet the majority of the way that we're seeing ourselves, but at least now we can call on actors and actresses and writers and uh, musicians. And I find it exciting that we are now seeing many more disability-led organizations that are bringing forward the voices of disabled people in various aspects of media, and that you're a very important part of that. And I think your story of how you began to feel comfortable about speaking up. So while obviously people make their own decisions, one can't make anybody do something they don't want to do. I think the presence of people with disabilities is very important in allowing people maybe to put their toe in the water. Our movement is an intergenerational movement. Although I think for people who are older and acquiring disabilities, it's still maybe in some ways more difficult than for younger people to jump in. Uh, are you doing any work with the aging community? It's really interesting that you brought that up. Just this past November, um, I did a speech for uh, the UN, and now it, the organization is escaping me. But basically, the UN is now focusing on the aging population and the inequity that exists. Uh, the United Nations is working on a treaty similar to the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which will be focusing on older people. Yes. And so uh, you were asked to give a presentation at one of their meetings. Yeah, yeah, they hosted their their conference here in Niagara, which is just an hour outside of Toronto. And that was the first time that I started to explore that. And it, it was really timely because I have a grandmother who five years ago had a stroke. Um, and she's been navigating the healthcare system in the United States through her daughters, my mom and her sisters. And without getting too much into it, you know, the healthcare system isn't set up for her. She, her stroke affected her reasoning. So in some regards, she can take care of herself, but in other regards, she can't. And there really isn't a place for her that exists that can offer the kind of care that she needs. And it's been a really difficult time for my family to figure out where does she go and to see all the inequity from funding to not being properly trained and and all, all of those things. And so for me, it's something that I'm starting to become aware of as I get older and as people in my life and community start to get older. So I don't know what that looks like yet for me and, and how I can lend a hand, so to speak, but I'm definitely learning firsthand through my family what that looks like. That raises now that you're living in Canada and benefiting from the Canadian healthcare system. When you think about your grandmother and her healthcare in the U.S., and you think about your grandmother if she were living with you in Toronto, do you have any idea what the difference would be in the kinds of services she would be able to get and the cost of those services? It's not something that I can totally speak to because I don't really know what the system looks like here in Canada when it comes to aging. I have a friend whose uh, family member works in one and, and I know, you know, Canada has their issues too, but I, I think my guess is based on my experience of accessing, you know, social medicine is the cost would be different. Uh, and I think as, as you and I know, that can be a huge barrier. And so I, I think probably my guess is here in Canada, that would be different. But I, I can't say that definitively because I'm, I'm not as familiar with the system here. But as a user of the system yourself 
and having been a user of the system in the U.S. What types of variations do you see? I mean, the reason I raise this is, you know, you are unique, at least as a disabled person who grew up in the U.S. and who's now living in Canada and who, quite frankly, lived in Wyoming, which everyone knows is a more conservative anti-government state. Yeah. Do you see that your quality of life in Canada from a healthcare perspective different from Wyoming? And what would you say the differences are? Absolutely. In multiple facets of my life. So I would say the first is, you know, having access to universal health care, it's so much easier in regards to financially. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll give an example, Judy, just if this helps. Last summer, I was attending like a drag show outside and I ended up getting heat stroke. I was able to ride in an ambulance and get proper care at a hospital. And it cost me $45 to ride in the ambulance. That's all I paid. Everything else was taken care of. And so having to go to the doctor often and not having to pay for that. I mean, we obviously pay for it with our taxes, but that has been a huge difference and and brings a bit of comfort in knowing that's one less thing that I have to worry about. Now, no system is perfect and it has its difficulties navigating as well. But for the most part, it provides a lot of comfort. And then on the flip side of that, because Canada can be quite liberal as someone that identifies as gay, the rights that I have here versus the rights that I have in the United States are, look very different as well. And Canada has been far ahead when it comes to, to queer rights. We still have a lot of work to do here too, but just in general, the quality of life as someone that is disabled and gay is, I find for me personally, is, this is going to sound terrible, my parents are going to be so sad. It's much better than the United States, you know? <laughs> Well, although, you know, we started this program talking about you as an artist, I think this part makes me cry. (laughs) This part is a very important fact that um, people in the U.S. really don't know about the Canadian healthcare system and the propaganda that was used during campaigns against the ACA with advertisements from people supposedly representing Canada who are coming down to the U.S. for healthcare services, which in many ways was elective and would have been difficult if they were U.S. having to get those services, is critically important. And so I appreciate very much your sharing this information, which is not anecdotal, but quite personal. And, you know, when I think about ambulance services, medical services. And when someone here, you know, gets sick and goes to the hospital, even with insurance, having to worry about the bills, which is not the case in Canada or many other countries. Well, we are wrapping up our program today. And I hope that those of you listening uh, will become part of the next million people (laughs) that Spencer's TikTok, which I called a few minutes ago, TikTok. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, will engage with and um, other programs that he's doing. And I guess another message is, please look at healthcare systems like in Canada and most other countries around the world and learn about the importance of having quality healthcare. And Spencer, from me to you, please do not get another heat stroke. <laughs> no, no. 
Lesson learned. And and Judy, if I may, I, I just really want to take this opportunity for what you and so many of the folks did for our community uh, that, that you've been doing your whole life for me to be successful today. That's because of you and because of the work that you you have been doing and continue to do. And it's I feel really privileged that, that I got to share this time with you and meet someone who uh, has done so much incredible work for the world and for the United States and has allowed me to have the life that I have because you chose to not accept what existed. And I just, I just think it, it's really important that I say thank you and how much gratitude I have for you. I wish I could say I bore you and that you were my son, <laughs> but the reality is I didn't. I'll adopt you. I could, I'm old enough. But I really, um, I appreciate your comments. And at the end of the day, I think what our movement around the world is doing is really releasing the talent of people like yourself and that you're releasing other talent. So as I end yet another show crying out of joy, um, thank you very much and we'll stay in touch. I would love that. Thanks, Judy. Now it's time for Ask Judy, a segment where Judy answers questions sent in by listeners. I'm so excited for this special edition of Ask Judy. For the first time ever, we have an in-person guest to ask Judy a question live. So I'm going to hand it over to Judy to introduce our listener to ask a question. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. What's your name? I'm Kira Thompson from Wisconsin. How old are you? 15 years old. And we just had a great lunch together, right? Yeah. I'm so proud of Kira. She's also the author of a book. What's it called? Mila and the Two Heart Hoop. And she's given me a great copy and we'll post the name of the book. So Kira, what was the question that you wanted to ask me? How do you fit in when you feel different when having a disability? That's great. So you're 15 years old and I think young people frequently feel like they don't fit in, not just because you have a disability, but because people are growing. And also you were saying that you have some people that you know who aren't necessarily nice to you. We were discussing how it's important to be friends with people who you like and they like you. So for me, when I was 15, I was just learning that not everybody liked me. That wasn't necessarily because I had a disability, but in some cases, people weren't very nice to me because I had a disability. Is that one of the things you've experienced also? I'm not sure. I think it's part of both. Yeah. But now you have some older friends. Right? Yeah. And how do you feel with them? I like them a lot. So how would you answer your question? I think that it's important to find the people that I like to be with and like to ha have a mix of people with disabilities and not disabilities and find the activities that's right for me. That's the answer to the question. That was brilliant. Thanks. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. Thank you, Kira, and thank you, Judy. And to our listeners, if you have a question for Judy, you can send it to us at media at judithhuman.com. Thank you. Thank you. That history won't forget us or trust him in our pain. Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guest or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. 
Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yuntero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.